You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is the Artist Profile Series, episode 37. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, written by L. Frank Baum, has been heralded as the great American fairy tale. Generations of both young and old alike have been fascinated by this whimsical tale since the early 1900s. When the book was first published, it became an immediate bestseller and was translated into multiple languages as well as adapted to Broadway musicals and several silent films. Frank Baum had reimagined the traditional fairy tale and created a story so universal it caught on like wildfire. And still today, over 120 years later, new adaptations continue to emerge. The impact of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz on American culture cannot be understated. When MGM's movie first appeared in 1939, it sparked a revolution within the film industry. Fast forward to 2018, and Vanity Fair published an article citing The Wizard of Oz as the most influential movie ever made. But aside from movies and biographies, spin-offs and retellings, Countless books have been written in attempt to decipher the hidden meanings within Baum's symbolism. Some interpreters claim the story was written as a political allegory. Some point out the influence of his mother-in-law's feminism and Frank's own theosophical spirituality. Others claim it should be taken as nothing more than a fairy tale written to delight children. And perhaps that is part of the magic of Oz its ability to hold multiple meanings at once without forcing any of them upon its audience. The spiritual and creative influence of the Oz story in my own life goes back to over a decade. I've written and spoken about it many times in other places, and I have notebooks full of my own interpretations of Oz as the hero's journey. But for today's artist profile, I want to give a glimpse into the life of the man who brought this story to life. This episode is by no means meant to encompass all the many details of Frank's life or the prevailing motivations behind his work, but I do want to highlight several fascinating points that have stood out to me as I've studied his life, as well as I want to share a few thoughts on possible meanings that I've found in his work. Lyman Frank Baum was born May 15, 1856, in Chittenango, New York. He was the seventh of nine children born to Benjamin and Cynthia Stanton Baum, although only four of his siblings survived to adulthood. His father Benjamin was a skillful businessman who embarked on one business venture after another until he found wealth and began investing in the booming oil industry. Frank's mother, Cynthia, was a devout Christian who came from a family of Scotch-Irish farmers and had seen many tragedies in her life, including the death of multiple children. In 1866, having secured his fortune, Benjamin Baum purchased a nearly four-acre estate, which Cynthia named Rose Lawn, after the red roses that blossomed around the property each year. This property would become one of the defining hallmarks of Frank's early life. As a child, Frank was quiet, frail, and he suffered with a weak heart from a battle with rheumatic fever. 
And due to his physical limitations, he couldn't run and play like the other kids. And so he spent most of his time reading books and daydreaming of the fictional worlds of Grimm's fairy tales, Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and the works of James Fenimore Cooper. Each of these imaginative stories contributed to the growing inner landscape in young Frank's mind. He confessed to his sister Hattie of his desire to one day write a great novel that would win him fame. A few years after purchasing Rose Lawn, Frank's father bought another 300 acres of the surrounding farmland and forest. He built stables for horses, pastures for cows, and coops for chickens. Frank spent many hours exploring the property's streams, apple orchards, and woods. It was a happy childhood, which he remembered as a rich and pleasant place. But Frank's idyllic land of happiness and imaginative bliss was interrupted when his father determined to send him away to the Peekskill Military Academy. Mr. Baum wanted to focus Frank's daydreaming mind and have him learn the skill to fight in war. And despite Cynthia's concern that this would be terrible for Frank's weak heart condition, his father's will prevailed. Cynthia committed to pray for her son and to have faith that God would bring him through the ordeal. So 200 miles from home, Frank stepped off a steamboat and into a city whose roads were made of yellow brick pavers, one of Peekskill's primary manufacturing products. Obviously, the yellow bricks left an impression on him, as did the rest of his time at Peekskill. The academy was a rigorous environment that left little time for daydreaming between constant marching drills and training for war. Frank was often punished for his wandering mind and inability to keep up with the strict demands of his instructors. He wrote to his father telling him of his teacher's abusive treatment and the impossible rules they imposed upon him, but his father did not budge. Finally, during one instance when Frank was being beaten with a cane for staring out the window, he fell to the floor unconscious. The violence triggered a mild heart attack, and this event finally ended his time at the academy. Frank returned home, but he was marked by the experience. He had felt abandoned by his mother and felt like a failure to his father. The trauma from Peekskill followed him into his dreams where a wild scarecrow chased him through the darker regions of his mind. Night after night, the scarecrow climbed down from his pole and chased Frank through the cornfields. On his 14th birthday, Frank's father seemed to show a change of heart and gave him a gift which enabled his creative imagination to flourish. It was a small printing press. Frank and his brother Harry began printing a newspaper which they titled the Rose Lawn Home Journal. The paper featured stories and poems Frank had written for his family and friends to enjoy. The printing press brought him an immense delight and gave him shelter from the harsh memories of the Peekskill Academy. As he grew into a young man, writing stuck with him. He tried his hand at many different occupations, but none of them lasted. He worked in a relative's store in Syracuse. He worked as a salesman for his father's business, a reporter in New York City, and even opened his own print shop in Bradford, Pennsylvania, where he founded a newspaper. Still by the age of 24, Frank was the last child to leave Rose Lawn and held no other financial prospects before him. So he decided to start a business selling eggs from the farm's chickens. 
And even here, as Frank tried his hand at a proper money-making business, his imagination continued to pull him into other worlds. Frank imagined the chickens talking to him and often wrote about the conversations. Alongside of raising chickens, Frank began to explore a budding fascination with theater. He performed in small productions put together by his Aunt Kate. He began writing his own plays and eventually owned a few theaters of his own. He convinced his father and brothers to go in with him on the venture and purchased what became the Baum Opera House in Richburg, New York. This first theater expanded to another and then to another. Frank wrote and performed in the plays. He managed and booked his theaters and conducted the rehearsals. His devotion to the craft grew to such that he even kept a room for himself above the stages where he lived and wrote his plays. One of the plays, titled The Maid of Aaron, was met with a measure of success and encouraged him to take the show on the road. He traveled from New York to Pennsylvania to Toronto, Rochester, Chicago, and several other cities. It would seem Frank had found a place where his imagination and vocation could intersect. As I mentioned earlier, Frank's mother was a devout Christian who brought up her children in the Methodist tradition. I'm unsure what she may have felt about her son's career as an actor. I know she disapproved of his playing baseball on the Sabbath, but I know that one of the pervading religious sentiments of the day held that theaters were the devil's synagogues. In his book, Finding Oz, author Evan Schwartz writes, There had been various forms of theater in America going back to the 1750s, but the outcome of the Revolutionary War had given the Puritans the change to rise up and start closing theaters. Church leaders saw theaters as competition with the kind of indoctrination they provided. Laws were passed in Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island banning the performance of plays. Preachers spoke of theaters as the devil's synagogues, places where fabricated human emotions were on display. The contempt continued into the 19th century, a time in which many religious leaders forbade dancing in public. Acting was considered an even viler form of expression, one step down from public drunkenness. Schwartz continues to describe a theater burning down in Brooklyn and killing several people, which was cited as evidence of God punishing them for being in an evil place. And I don't want to speculate here, but it's not a far reach to imagine the inner conflict Frank must have experienced, having been brought up in the Christian faith, struggling to find his place in the world, only to learn that his artistic passion was frowned upon by his family's religion. In the spring of 1882, the Baum Opera House burned to the ground. I wonder, did this incident impact Frank's view of what he felt the Christian God thought of his creative work? Did he too believe that this was God's judgment? I'm not sure. But it would seem his spiritual path began to splinter further and further away from the religion of his youth. A few months before the theater burned down, Frank returned home from tour to visit his family for Christmas. While he was there, his sister Harriet introduced him to Maud Gage, the woman who would soon become his wife. Maud was a tall, intellectual woman with merry, mischievous eyes, as Frank described her. 
She was the daughter of Matilda Jocelyn Gage, who was a prominent feminist leader and a sharp critic of government and organized Christianity. Matilda rejected the idea that her daughter would marry a struggling artist and a playwright who couldn't keep a decent job. I won't have my daughter be a darned fool and marry an actor, she said. But when she saw that Maud was determined to marry Frank, Matilda conceded and they were married in her home. In the book, The Real Wizard of Oz by Rebecca Loncrane, the author shares how the gauges didn't share the values of the bombs. Maud had been brought up in an unconventional household that encouraged intellect, outspokenness, and the questioning of convention. Maud hadn't been baptized. Her mother, Matilda, was an intellectual, a political radical, and activist. She was one of the founding figures in the American women's suffrage movement, along with Katie Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. Although Matilda first rejected Frank as a suitable husband for her daughter, she became a tremendous influence on Frank's thinking and spiritual interests. Some have even pointed out that she seems to have taken more of an influence over Frank than his own mother, as his growing distance from Christianity may have created a breach in their relationship. After their honeymoon, Frank and Maude headed back on the road to resume his life as a touring actor. They lived out of suitcases in ramshackle hotels, theatrical boarding houses for months at a time. Eventually, Maude told Frank it was time to leave this life behind and start a family. As they settled down and began to have children, Frank returned to his family's oil business and sought to live a more conventional life providing for his family. However, financial troubles continued to plague him and he went from one failed job to another. All the while, he continued writing poems and plays and was known for his enjoyment of telling fantastical stories to children. Eventually, Frank and his growing family moved to Aberdeen, South Dakota, where he opened a bazaar selling lamps, toys, and candy. The bazaar enjoyed a short-lived success, but soon closed due to near bankruptcy. So again, he leaned on his writing and ran a newspaper, which also went under due to bankruptcy. And it's interesting to note that here in Aberdeen, Frank found an outlet for acting in theatricals hosted by an Episcopalian church. I find this important to note because it's easy to look back at history and assume that one stance on a matter encompasses the whole. But even as acting was frowned upon by some church leaders, it was here that the church helped Frank keep his passion alive when he had no other means of expressing his art. However, it was also here in Aberdeen where Frank's spiritual path took a turn further away from the traditional faith of his upbringing. Matilda would visit and hosted seances in their home. She introduced Frank to theosophy and spiritualism, which was a popular countercultural practice to the traditional Christianity of the day. The open prairie of Aberdeen was a recent settlement without an established Christian history, as Lon Crane points out in her book. Far away from the grounding influence of his mother and coming under the new ideas Matilda was introducing to him, he drifted from conventional forms of religious belief. Frank found the restrictive nature of the church to be a hindrance to exploring new ideas about the deeper mysteries of life. In several of his editorials, Frank discussed spiritual matters along with offering a deep critique of the church. He said, while everything else has progressed, the church alone has been trying to stand still. He called Christianity an ancient and beautiful religion, but found its representatives to be full of superstition, intolerance, and bigotry. 
Along with his editorials, Frank debated with the Reverend Dr. Keeling from St. Mary's Episcopal Church, who had lectured on spiritualism as a deceptive practice Christians should avoid. Ultimately, the Bombs left their affiliation with the Episcopal Church. They packed their bags and headed to Chicago, where Frank took on more odd jobs and finally found his way toward his calling as a successful children's writer. And although Frank did not continue on the path of organized Christianity, he strongly believed that the Oz story was given to him by God. He said, It was pure inspiration. It came to me right out of the blue. I think that sometimes the great author has a message to get across, and he has to use the instrument at hand. I happened to be that medium, and I believe the magic key was given me to open the doors to sympathy and understanding, joy, peace, and happiness. There are many people in our modern world who could sympathize with Frank's turbulent relationship with the organized church. Everyone seems to have their story of why one place or another did not work out for them. Whether painful experiences of spiritual abuse or disagreements over doctrines, the reasons for the fractures are endless. And yet, the desire for transcendence remains. The desire to connect with God, to feel as if our lives are serving a higher purpose and that we have a significant place to belong, these foundational spiritual needs do not go away when the structures that held them do. It's interesting to note that the heroine of the Oz story, Dorothy Gale, was an orphaned, displaced child. Her name Dorothy means gift of God. And like Dorothy, beyond even our yearnings for wonder, for magical experiences that lift us up above the mundane, what the heart truly longs for is home. In the story, Dorothy and her ragtag band of needy, misplaced friends make their way to see the great wizard. Their hopes are placed in this wizard to give them their heart's truest desires. But after a series of dangerous encounters, setbacks, and detours, they stand before the great and powerful Oz only to learn that there is a man behind the curtain who's running the show. I've often wondered if this scene was not indicative of Frank's own disillusionment with religion, that what he had thought was of divine origin turned out to be a little man behind a curtain. But if we're going to follow this thread of interpretation, the story also tells us that it is her dog Toto, meaning Tudor, who pulled back the curtain. So through a Christian lens, this tutor or teacher is the Holy Spirit who pulls back the veil and reveals hidden things to us. And perhaps even our painful experiences of disillusionment with religion or with life can lead us to a deeper, truer understanding of God if we keep our hearts open and humble to be taught. And I should be clear in my own life, I only have gratitude toward the church even if I sometimes feel uncomfortable in certain settings. My own heart and mission is to build bridges between the artist and the community of faith because I think there's a gift each has for the other and the two need one another and flourish when we make room in our lives for the gift of the other, even for those who may be most unlike ourselves. We have all too many examples like Frank Baum where an irreparable chasm opened 
and someone gifted and called by God found themselves orphaned or made their spiritual home some other place. Maybe what we need are some of Dorothy's magical shoes. In the story you may remember, Dorothy throws off her old leather shoes and puts on a pair of magical silver shoes she acquired from a defeated foe. She knew her old leather shoes were not fit for the journey ahead. And I think in the same way, it's time that we put old arguments behind us because the journey ahead requires us to do so. We can't go forward if we hold on to old wounds and old offenses. We need to put on the shoes of peace and begin our journey home. Thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics Artist Profile Series. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. Mystics.